This Lord's Day, we continue looking at the matter of occasional hearing, and I direct your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. By way of review, I ask the question, what is occasional hearing? Again, occasional hearing is the practice of occasionally attending the public acts of worship of an unfaithful church or occasionally receiving the official administrations of a minister who is a member of an unfaithful church. Let me say this also again for you, that although we believe the practice of occasional hearing to be sinful, Nevertheless, we do not rejoice in our separation from other churches, nor do we despise brothers or sisters who may be members of such unfaithful churches. We love them and pray for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But that certainly does not mean that we can enjoy communion with them in their violation of God's commandments in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Now, there are many who would seek to justify the practice of occasional hearing by appealing to the words and example of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, if the king of the church taught and practiced occasional hearing, then occasional hearing ought to be practiced by all believers. But did Christ teach and practice occasional hearing? That's the primary question we will seek by God's grace to answer this Lord's Day. And to that end, we will examine the following main points in the sermon today. First of all, the context of Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Second, the sins and errors of the Pharisees exposed. And thirdly, the prohibition of Christ expounded. So let us consider then our very first Point the context of the passage. Matthew chapter 23 is the culmination of Christ's condemnation 
upon the false religion embraced by the religious leaders of the Jews and epitomized in the teaching and practice of the Pharisees. Matthew has prepared us for Christ's scathing denunciation of the religion of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 by having devoted two previous chapters, Matthew chapters 21 and 22, to the final conflict between the true religion of Christ and the false religion of the Pharisees. In the two previous chapters, simply note in chapter 21, verse 45, these conflicts which lead up to what Christ says in chapter 23 of Matthew. The Lord says, or the, the text says in Matthew 21, 45, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. They're getting quite incensed with the Lord because the parables are directed against them. We find in chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus continues giving parables against the false religion of the Pharisees. Verse 1 of chapter 22, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables. And said, you see, he didn't he didn't lay off the off of the Pharisees because they got upset with him that he was speaking parables against them. He continued to make the point with them, which made them further angry. Chapter 22, verse 15. It says, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him that is Christ in his talk. They tried to ensnare him in certain words to catch him. Chapter 22, verse 23, another sect of the Jews, the Sadducees, now comes to Christ to try to ensnare him. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him. In chapter 22, verse 23, I'm sorry, 22, verse 34, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. You see, they're just taking their shots. They're taking their turns to try to ensnare Christ. And this happens, according to the text, all in the same day. They're building up to a crescendo. Their hatred of Christ. They're despising of his doctrine and of his teaching. And then in chapter 22, verse 41... While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, and he asked them a question there, which they could not respond to and answer. And so this conflict in the two previous chapters, and actually throughout the whole ministry of Christ, is building, 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 until they finally put Christ to death. The words of the Lord that are found in Matthew 23 occur in the last few days before the crucifixion, the last week of Christ's life before the crucifixion. That is significant, I believe, because these words concerning the Pharisees, which Christ utters in Matthew 23, must be interpreted in light of Christ's continual conflict with the Pharisees throughout his entire ministry. You see, 
The words of the Lord found in Matthew chapter 23 verses 1 through 4 are not words of reconciliation. They're not words of toleration. They're not words of appeasement, but rather words of explicit condemnation as the rest of Matthew chapter 23 will demonstrate. Note, before we move on to the second main point, note that Matthew makes it clear in chapter 23, verse 1, that the audience to whom Christ spake these words included his disciples and a larger multitude. The Lord, dear ones, is giving to all who will hear his revealed will concerning the ministry of the Pharisees. Does he encourage the masses to support the ministry of the Pharisees or rather does he forbid them and prohibit them from doing so in what he says in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 23? Well, let us consider the second main point, the sins and errors of the Pharisees exposed Before looking more closely at our text, let us consider just for a moment the many errors and sins believed and practiced by these religious teachers and rulers, the Pharisees. And having this background as to their sins and as to their errors and as to the condemnation of the Lord upon them throughout the gospel accounts, it will help us better to understand the words of the Lord that we find in Matthew chapter 23, especially verses 2 through 3. First of all, they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. John chapter 10 Verses 30 and 31, Christ says, I and the Father are one. What did they do? They took up stones to stone him. They said he had committed and uttered blasphemy. So they denied his deity. Secondly, they taught a salvation by works of the law. You remember the parable of the Lord, where he said that a publican and a Pharisee went into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee came up close. And he said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like this publican, that I fast, that I do all of these good things. The publican couldn't approach God. He couldn't look up into heaven, but simply beat his chest and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the one who went away justified was not the Pharisee, but the publican. Because the, public, or because the Pharisee was seeking to be justified and declared righteous on the basis of his own works, upon his own law-keeping and merit before God. Paul, who was at one time himself a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says. He says concerning the doctrine of the Pharisees in Romans chapter 10, he gives us a little bit of insight into this issue. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Notice this. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness 
and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They preferred their own righteousness over the righteousness of God and therefore incurred the condemnation of the Lord. Thirdly, they altered the commandments of God and worship of God for the sake of their own tradition. The Lord condemns them accordingly in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6. Fourthly, their doctrine was leavened with false teaching. The Lord says that their doctrine is leavened. It is corrupt. It is impure. In Matthew 16, 6 and 12. The Pharisees, you'll recall, accused Jesus Christ of even being demonic. And that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. They accused Jesus Christ of uttering blasphemy, as I've already mentioned in John 10, verse 33. And they sought to kill the Lord Jesus Christ during his ministry and eventually succeeded. Finally, in this regard, note not only their errors and their sins, but note the condemnation of Christ himself in relation to the ministry of the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, just follow with me very briefly what the Lord says concerning the ministry of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, first verse 13. The Lord says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Here were ministers who did not lead anybody to heaven. They were leading people to hell. Not only were they themselves headed that direction, but they were leading others that direction. The Lord pronounces a woe upon them, which is the same as a curse. Cursed are they. Notice also in verse 15, and I especially emphasize this verse. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Are they building up anybody in the faith? No, they're making them twofold the child of hell than they were themselves. And then in verse 33, Matthew 23. Whoa. I'm sorry. Verse 33. Ye serpents. Ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Does Jesus consider these men to be faithful ministers or unfaithful ministers? Shouldn't be any question in our minds at all. 
For this is precisely the same condemnation brought against the Pharisaical ministers that crept into the church and which the Apostle Paul utters against them in Galatians chapter 1. The same Pharisaical leaders had crept into the church. And this is what the Apostle says in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Before we move on to the next point, listen to one historical confirmation, which also corroborates the fact that the Pharisees were false teachers within a Jewish church. From the Scottish Confession of Faith of 1560, chapter 18, the section entitled Of the Notes or Marks by Which the True Church is Discerned from the False, we find the following words. The notes, signs, and assured tokens whereby the immaculate spouse of Christ Jesus is known from that horrible harlot, the Kirk or church malignant, we affirm are neither in antiquity, title usurped, lineal descent, place appointed, nor multitude of men approving an error. For Cain in age and title was preferred to Abel and Seth. Jerusalem had prerogative above all places of the earth. Where also were the priests lineally descended from Aaron? And note now, and greater multitude followed the scribes, Pharisees and priests then unfeignedly believed and approved Christ Jesus and his doctrine. And yet, as we suppose, no man of whole judgment will grant that any of the forenamed were the Kirk or church of God. And so they were false ministers, according to the Scottish Confession of 1560 as well. Now that you understand the heretical teaching and false worship of the Pharisees and as well the manifest condemnation given to them by Christ himself, let us proceed to consider the words of the Lord Jesus as found in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4. And so we consider now our final point, the prohibition of Christ expounded. As we consider the statement of Christ found in Matthew 23, verse 2, please note that there is no approval given by Christ, but simply a statement of fact. When it says the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That is, they sit in an official capacity as interpreters of the law of God given by Moses. However, carefully note 
that there is no more approval of the Pharisees sitting in Moses' seat here in Matthew 23, 2, than there is approval of the man of sin, that is the papal antichrist, sitting in the temple of God in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. It's a statement. It's not an approval. It's a statement of reality and fact that they were sitting in Moses' seat. In fact, the same Greek word for sit is used in both the cases in Matthew 23.2 and with regard to the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And just as Paul makes God's disapproval clear concerning the ministry of the man of sin in what proceeds and follows in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So the Lord makes his disapproval absolutely clear concerning the ministry of the Pharisees and what precedes and follows in the gospel accounts. And that's why we cannot read these two verses in isolation from all that Christ says in the gospel accounts. Dear ones, just because a false teacher usurps the office of minister and sits in that official capacity is no reason to assume that he is to be heard. Otherwise, how can we explain the many passages of Scripture which warn us to flee from those who maintain and promote error contrary to the truth? and yet who are a part of the visible church. In Deuteronomy 13.3, there the people are told not to hear a false prophet who comes speaking in the name of God, even giving signs and wonders, but if he does not speak according to the truth which you have already received, you're not to hear him. You're not to attend upon his ministry. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 5, as well, emphasizing the same point. And a stranger will they, the sheep, not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. The sheep will flee from those who are strangers and not faithful, true shepherds, the Lord says. This is what all the sheep are to do. They are to flee from them. They are not to attend upon their ministry. They're to run as quickly as they can from the ministry of a false church or from the ministry of an unfaithful minister. They're not to flee to, but away from. And likewise, in Romans 16, 17, there we have read and seen this passage many times in the recent past, where the Apostle Paul says that those who cause division and lead you away from the truth which you have not received, you are to avoid them and withdraw from them. And so as we look at verse 2, 
do not understand verse 2 to imply any approval on the part of Christ that the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. It's a statement of fact, of reality, not a statement of approval. The next uh, point, let us consider the words of the Lord now in Matthew 23, verse 3, moving on to the next verse, wherein we find these words. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. And so the critical question is this, are we to understand these words of our Lord as an encouragement to countenance and attend the ministry of the Pharisees in light of all that we have learned about the Pharisees. Is that what the Lord is saying? Well, such a possibility seems very, very strange indeed after considering all that the Pharisees professed and practiced. In fact, if this passage gives Christ's approval, yea, his explicit command to sit under the teaching of the Pharisees, then it also requires us to sit under the false teaching of those ministers and churches that likewise embrace the same errors as that of the Pharisees such as the Jehovah Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ, such as the Arminians who deny that salvation is solely by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Papists who impose their own tradition into worship and thus replace the commandments of God with the commandments of men, or even ministers that blaspheme the name of Christ and put him to open shame. If we're, to, if we're commanded by Christ, or if those present in Christ's hearing were commanded to attend upon the ministry of the Pharisees who held and who denied these cardinal doctrines, then we likewise are commanded to attend upon the ministry of such unfaithful men as well. Thus, this passage, dear ones, proves too much for the supporters of occasional hearing. That is, it proves more than a Christian would want possibly to prove from this passage. For if Christ commands the people to sit under the ministry of the Pharisees and take what is agreeable to God's word and reject what is not agreeable to God's word, then I submit to you that the reformers were guilty of sinful schism and division in leaving the church of Rome and in teaching that all who were in Rome should come out of her permanently. They were, they were guilty of sinful division and schism. They should have told the people to stay in Rome and to take the good and spit out the bad. If that's what the Lord is saying. In Matthew 23:3, to the contrary, dear ones, again, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, this is not what the Lord says that we are to do concerning the harlot of Rome. And therefore, 
it is not what the Lord commands that they were to do with regard to the harlot and the, the harlotry and the false and unfaithful ministry of the Pharisees. In Revelation 18:4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people." that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. See, that's the command of the Lord, come out of her. Don't occasionally attend upon her ministry, come out of her permanently, have nothing to do with her, lest you do become partakers of her sins and of her plagues. Thus, since we are presented with too many inconsistencies in other portions of the Word of God with such an interpretation, we must look for another explanation of the words of our Lord here in Matthew 23, 3. And I submit that there are two ways to understand the Lord's words here that do not conflict with the rest of Scripture. I'm not going to necessarily come down on one of these views as opposed to the other. But I do believe that they both give a very reasonable and biblical explanation of the words of the Lord, whereby a person is not in a position that they have to take the words of the Lord to mean that he was telling them to attend to the ministry of the Pharisees. The very first of those ways to understand the Lord's words in Matthew 23.3 is that the Lord gives a figurative command rather than a literal command. That is to say, Christ commands the people to do something which he does not intend them to actually obey and indicates this perhaps, we, we don't have a recording of the Lord's voice, but indicates this perhaps by the tone in his voice, and certainly he indicates it by the strong condemnation of the Pharisees that follows in Matthew chapter 23, as well as everything else that the Lord says concerning the Pharisees in the gospel accounts. Thus, such a figurative or ironic command has the effect of actually being a prohibition against doing what he says to do. For example, let me simply give to you some places in the scripture where you find these types of figurative commands or ironic commands. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 15, Here is the account of the prophet Micaiah as he comes before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Ahab has called for the prophets to give him counsel as to whether he should go to war against Syria. Actually, Jehoshaphat required that Ahab do so, and Ahab consents to do so. Well, here comes the one true and faithful prophet of God. The others who have come before him have been unfaithful. They have given a message, go forth, the Lord will be with you. So this has already occurred. Now, in walks Micaiah, 
In verse 14, and Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So he came to the king and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we forbear? And he answered him, go and prosper for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, the king knew that he was being facetious. He was being sarcastic. The king knew that this command was one of irony because notice what the king says immediately afterwards. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? The king could tell that this was a command of irony. Sarcasm. Actually, the command that Micaiah was giving was, don't go. Don't go. Because God will not be with, with thee. Consider also in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 39. <clears throat> Ezekiel prophesying. On behalf of God says, as for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, go ye, serve ye every one his idols. And hereafter also, if ye will not hearken unto me. Serve ye every one his idols. Again, a command of irony. God is not saying, OK, go enjoy because I give you my approval and my blessing. Go and enjoy your idolatry. I will not hold you accountable for doing so. Again, it's a command of sarcasm showing how much God detests their rebellion and that they are bent on doing what is wrong. In Amos chapter 4, verse 4, you'll find a similar kind of command. I won't look that up. In Matthew 26, verse 45, the disciples have three times fallen asleep. The Lord comes the third time and he says, rest on. Go ahead and sleep. Is that what he meant to say? Is that what he was saying? Go ahead and continue sleeping? No, because the very next statement, he says, rise up, let's go. He said, he's saying to the disciples, you're bent on sleeping. And he, he uses sarcasm by saying, sleep on. A figurative command, a command of irony. And you can look this one up as well in your own time. Matthew 20 or Revelation 22, 11. The question may be asked, how do you know that a command is figurative or not? Because we don't certainly want to interpret every command of the Lord to be figurative and to mean the opposite of what it says. Well, I offer these two grounds or ways of determining whether there is a figurative command. First, if it violates the commandments of God, it's a figurative command. God does not contradict himself. And so if the command violates what God teaches and commands in other places, you know that it is a 
a command of irony or a figurative command. Secondly, if the immediate context demonstrates that it is not to be obeyed, and in all of the commands of irony, you will find that the context itself will give you indications that this is a command of irony. And the same is true in Matthew 23 because of the Lord's explicit condemnation, the woes and the curses he pronounces upon the Pharisees, that he's not sending these people to sit under their ministry. Well, the second way in which to understand this passage in a way which does not contradict the rest of Scripture, the words of the Lord in the Gospel accounts, is to interpret the words of the Lord in Matthew 23.3, these words, observe and do, to interpret those words not as a command, but as an indicative. That is, the Lord is not commanding the people to observe and do as the Pharisees teach, but rather is indicating what the people actually are observing and doing, and by inference, what they should not be observing and doing. You see, the Greek form for the imperative, for that mood of command, and the, and the indicative, a simp which is a simply a simple statement. So a command and a simple statement use the same form in the Greek language. So it's the context that must determine whether it's a command or whether it's a simple statement. Well, rendering verse 3 as a simple statement, we would find that the verse says something like this. All things, therefore, whatever the Pharisees may tell you to observe, you are observing and doing. But I tell you, don't do according to their works. That is, don't follow them. Don't learn after them. Why are the people not to follow after or learn after the Pharisees according to the Lord? According to this passage, why aren't they to do so? This is extremely important if we're to understand why we're not to attend to the ministry of unfaithful ministers. First of all, there are two reasons. The first one being they are hypocrites, the Lord says, who say one thing and do something altogether different. For they say, the Lord says, for they say and do not. You see, the Lord is emphasizing the fact that they are hypocrites. And several times in Matthew chapter 23, he says, Woe upon you, you scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. And it certainly reminds us, dear ones, how we must hate hypocrisy if we're to be faithful to the Lord. How we must hate it, first of all, and despise it, first of all, in our own lives. How we must pray that God would rid us of all hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy leads to deception and delusion, to blindness. If we say one thing 
and practice something entirely different. If we try to live a double standard. And how important that is in our homes, parents. That we don't tell our children to do one thing and we live entirely different. But that we match up our profession with our practice. Because that will communicate to our children and everyone else that it's a lie. That we are simply going through the motions that our Christianity is not sincerely held and believed. And if you want your children to walk in the paths of waywardness, simply practice hypocrisy. Let them see that your faith is not really that meaningful to you. Let them see that you say that immorality is bad and evil and wicked, and yet you watch it in television and in movies. Let them hear you say that profanity is against the law of God, and yet we, we allow it into our homes in the music that we hear and in the movies we watch. And we're setting up a double standard that is going to exceedingly confuse our children. And sooner or later, it will dawn upon them there's a double standard here. What's wrong? God, help us not to be like the Pharisees and be hypocrites. The second reason that the Lord forbids the people to follow the Pharisees is due to the Pharisees introducing a man-made religion in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. And that is what the Lord means when he says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. You see, it was not God's good commandments that they were teaching the people because we find in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, that God's good commandments are not grievous. But what the Pharisees are teaching are heavy and grievous. And they lay them upon the shoulders and the backs of the people. Because they are the commandments of men. And even when they are teaching the commandments of God, they are not teaching it from the framework of the covenant of grace, but from the framework of the covenant of works. So that they must earn their salvation by all that they do. And so they were enslaving the consciences of men. You know, this is why the Lord Jesus Christ issues his invitation and pleads with us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God's commandments in the covenant of grace, dear ones, are not heavy. They are not 
grievous. For in the covenant of grace, Jesus Christ has already fulfilled all righteousness for his people. And it is not our covenant keeping, it is not our law keeping, it is not our obedience, but it is his obedience to which God always looks. And that's why the yoke of Christ is easy, because it is our delight then to keep and to be as faithful as we can, because we love the Lord for all that he has done for us. Not in order to win his favor, his love, his mercy or approval. But because we love him as our God, as our sovereign Lord and as our Redeemer. Thus the passage in Matthew 23, dear ones, offers no refuge for those seeking to establish a practice of occasional hearing. But someone may ask, didn't Christ frequent the synagogues where the Pharisees ministered according to Luke 4.16 and other passages? Well, turn with me there very briefly. Luke 4.16. There we find these words. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Yes, it was Christ's practice to attend the synagogues throughout Israel. But not for the purpose of hearing the false teaching of the Pharisees. Notice very carefully what was Christ's custom according to Luke 4.16. I'll read it again. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Is that where the period occurs? No, it continues. And stood up for to read. His custom was to attend the synagogues and not to be a hearer, but a preacher. He read the law of God when he went to synagogues and he proclaimed the truth and preached the word of God to those who were present, even to the Pharisees. And that's why the Pharisees were so angry with Christ. There is not, in fact, one example in the gospel accounts of Christ sitting under the ministry of the Pharisees. But here in Luke 4.16, we are told what was his practice. What was his custom? To go to read the word and to expound the word of God. And that's exactly what we find. And I, again, will not look up each of these verses. But if you would take down these verses, you will find in each and every case what Christ did when he went into the synagogues. In Matthew 13, verses, verse 54, Mark 1, verse 21, Mark 6, verse 2, the passage we just read in Luke 4, 16, Luke 6, verse 6, and John 6, verse 59. In each of these cases, it says he went into the synagogue and he read and he taught. For he went into the synagogue and he taught them. 
But it never says, we never find one single example where he went into the synagogue and sat under the ministry of the Pharisees. Dear ones, I offer and submit to you that that is not occasional hearing which Christ performed when he went to the synagogues. That is simply faithfully preaching the truth where God grants in his providence the opportunity. People were in those synagogues who needed to hear the truth, and that's where Christ went. Did Christ go there to conciliate the Pharisees in his public preaching in the synagogues? Did he go to share communion with the Pharisees in the synagogues? Well, that certainly isn't what it says in Luke 4.29, after Christ preached in Nazareth, they wanted to kill him. They tried to push him off the edge of the hill. He didn't go in to tickle their ears. He went in as a faithful preacher to expose their sin and their error. Thus, it is not occasional hearing either to preach in unfaithful churches when one is a faithful minister, as did Christ, and as did the apostles, or even to preach amongst pagan idols and images, as did Paul on Mars Hill, so long as the truth is faithfully proclaimed and heirs of the unfaithful assembly are exposed. For note what was the practice of Christ and his apostles in regard to those who did not receive him or his message. What did Christ tell his disciples to do when those did not receive their message? Did they, did the Lord say, continue to occasionally visit and hear the ministry of those unfaithful ministers? Of those unfaithful synagogues? Is that what the Lord said? Hardly. The Lord says, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. For it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. For they have had the faithful preaching of God's word in their ears and they have not heard it. They were to dissociate, separate from them if they did not hear and receive the exposing of their sins and errors. And you can consult these passages to verify that. Mark 6.11, Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew 11.23, and Acts 13.51, those three passages. Dear ones, I closed the sermon this Lord's Day by citing the words of Francis Turretin who as a faithful minister taught in the Academy of Geneva from 1657 through 1687 and faithfully propounded the Reformed religion to many there and whose works became the standard theology for Reformed and Presbyterian seminaries throughout the world. I read this quote, it's in his Institutes, Volume 3, page 245. Listen carefully to what he says. Innovators 
who propose to us a new and false doctrine differ from reformers whose design is not to bring in a new doctrine, but to reform the old which had been corrupted and to purge it from the heirs superinduced, that is added. The first, that is the innovators, are not to be heard according to the command of Paul, Galatians 1.8. But the latter, that is the reformers, not only are not to be rejected, but are to be embraced and followed with zeal if we are satisfied that they are true reformers. In order to ascertain this, that is, in order to ascertain whether they are true reformers, we must examine their doctrine. We maintain that our first pastors were such from the conformity of their doctrine with the doctrine of Christ, nor except most falsely can they be traduced or slandered as innovators. Dear ones, if we would pass on to our children a pure, unleavened faith, we must not compromise our testimony to it by occasionally attending the services of unfaithful ministers and churches that have corrupted it. The next time that the Lord brings us together, we will address yet a third sermon on this topic. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, grant that we be not innovators of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, but that we be reformers, that we purge the faith from the corruption that has been added to it, that we take it, Father, and not compromise it, and not confuse our children, O oh Father, by attending churches, unfaithful churches, and countenancing unfaithful ministers who by their creeds and confessions contradict what we profess to be true. We pray, Father, that Thou would in Thy amazing grace bring about a reconciliation of all of Thy church throughout the world in the truth. For this is the basis alone upon which we can enjoy true biblical unity. Lord, we long for that day. Our eyes, Father, are filled with tears for brethren who have departed from the truth, who walk disorderly, not according to thy commandments. And we pray, Father, that thy grace would be great in drawing them unto the truth that Thou would keep us from all pride, that Thou would cause us, Father, to be humble before Thee and to pursue truth and righteousness as Thou hast revealed it to us. In the name of Christ, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.